Let's take our Bibles and open to the general epistle of James. Toward the end of the New Testament, after the epistles of Paul, we find the general epistle of James. By the grace of God, we're commencing a study of this epistle. One of great practical importance and warning to us on many fronts of how we should maintain good works in following our Lord Jesus Christ. Unusual in a few respects, and I hope I can point some of those out, but we want to fasten our eyes and our understanding on each of these verses as the Lord leads us that we'll be convicted and led as to how we should conduct ourselves in this world. The general epistle of James. It's called a general epistle in your Bible because it's not written to a particular church in a particular place but to many scattered Jews throughout the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul usually wrote churches to specific, wrote epistles to specific churches, such as the epistle to the church at Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, the churches of Galatia. This epistle is in general to scattered Jews, and so it has the author's name, the writer's name, if you will, rather than his audience. The general epistle of James. Father in heaven, have mercy upon us and bless us with your precious word according to what has already been prayed that we might learn at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles what you would have for us that we might please thee more perfectly in each part of our lives while we are here. We look forward to the day when Jesus Christ shall come for us in glory. But until then, bless us to live glorious lives by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit that look like Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. The context of any writing is determined by asking and answering a few questions. The who, the whom... The what, the why, the when, and the where. Let's ask those questions and then answer them. The first question should be the who. And that's in the title of this book. Who wrote it? Then to whom was it written? Why was it written? And what kind of writing was it? When was it written? And where was it written from? In decreasing order of importance, we have these issues. Now, the the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. Amen. One of your memory verses for this week is 2 Peter 1.21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the author of the Bible, and yet he chose holy men to be his writers, to be his secretaries. Yes, I believe in secretaries in the Bible. Because another memory verse of yours is Psalm 45 and verse 1. My heart is indicting a good matter. Do you know what the word indict means? It means to dictate. God was dictating through the heart of David the things which he had made touching the king. His tongue was the pen of a ready writer. We believe that God gave the words and men wrote them down, but God gave words through each of his writers that involved to some degree their experiences and their personalities. Because all the books of Scripture are not the same. There's variety. There's precious variety. But we come to this one 
this epistle and the title and the first word are the same, James. We may not get too far in this first assembly, and we'll trust the Lord for that. I want you to think about the holy man named James that God used to write this epistle. And I hope it will comfort you, excite you, and tie a few things together in the New Testament. Some men say that the identity of James is one of the hardest nuts to crack in the whole New Testament. I say it's not that hard if we trust the words of the Bible and we do not have the perpetual virginity of Mary to uphold. If you are trying to defend the perpetual virginity of Mary, then you may have a little difficulty with all the Jameses that occur in the New Testament. But we have no such difficulty. If Mary was a perpetual virgin, she was certainly one of the most unloving, cruel, and hateful wives that ever walked this planet. The Bible says in Matthew 1.25 that Joseph didn't know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. I don't think she made it far from Bethlehem before Joseph consummated his marriage. And I don't speak crassly or foolishly. I'm just reminding you that their doctrine is crass and foolish. The perpetual virginity of Mary. We're going to deal with that in just a moment when we look at some verses. She was no perpetual virgin. She was a godly woman and she would have given herself to her husband as soon as she could have after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. To do otherwise would have been to defraud him and to violate other passages of Scripture and that godly virtuous woman would not have done so. We know the author is the Holy Spirit, but God chose special and He chose holy men to write His words And so we want to understand why God chose James to write these scattered Jews like he chose Peter and like he chose Jude to write them as well. Remember, in the Bible we have a division made between apostles that were sent to Gentiles and those that were sent to the Jews. Paul is the apostle of the Gentiles. He magnified his office. He is our apostle above all others. But there are other apostles that were ministers of the circumcision And so they wrote to the Jews, James. There are three apostles in the New Testament with the name of James. Three. The first two you know as James, the son of Zebedee. His brother was John. We refer to them as James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Then there was James, the son of Elpheus. These two were part of the original twelve apostles that Jesus Christ chose. But do not be so limited in your mind that you think that Jesus only had 12 apostles. Judas Iscariot fell from his office and was replaced by a man named Matthias. That's 13. Was the apostle Paul an apostle? That's 14. Was Barnabas his companion an apostle? Yes, we're up to 15. Was James an apostle? Yes, James the Lord's brother was an apostle. We're up to 16. And there could have been more. An apostle was someone who had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ and who could testify from an eyewitness standpoint that Jesus of Nazareth had indeed been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and was at the right hand of power. James. So let's pass over James the son of Zebedee. He was killed in Acts chapter 12. Only a few years out from Pentecost and Herod had his head cut off. The date of his death can be narrowed down because we can determine the date of the death of Herod 
Because the Lord killed Herod for killing James. That's James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. James the less, James the son of Elpheus, we hardly know anything about him. The Bible doesn't say much about him like it doesn't say much about several of the apostles. James, the son of Zebedee, was an important apostle because when Jesus went into particular places, he often took his three favorites with him, Peter, James, and John. And so James, the son of Zebedee, often went with Jesus, Mount of Transfiguration, the raising of the daughter of Jairus, into the Garden of Gethsemane, and so forth. He took those three. But, come over to Galatians chapter 1, and let's find ourselves a third James. A third James. And the reason we end up with a third James is because we trust these words. And we have no doctrine of Mary's virginity to defend. She was a virgin when she had the Lord Jesus Christ. But there, she was not a virgin after that, and the Bible proves it clearly. Galatians chapter 1. We covered this verse a couple of months ago when I preached through the epistle to the Galatians. Paul is describing his first trip up to Jerusalem after he had been converted. It says in verse 18, after three, Galatians 1.18, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now notice, there's two things we're going to learn about James in this verse. One, he's an apostle. I saw none of the other apostles save. James, the Lord's brother. And the second thing we learn is that this James is the Lord's brother. Now, if we have the doctrine of perpetual virginity to uphold, we take the word brother here and make it cousin. We make it stepbrother. We make it all sorts of things to avoid the force of the words that Jesus had a brother named James that was an apostle. But if we trace, starting with this verse, through the Gospels and through Paul, Paul and Luke's writings, we're going to see a man that was the brother of Jesus Christ. And we're going to trust that word brother, in spite of what the Catholics want us to believe. Turn it, let, okay, we have the words here that there is a James that was an apostle, and he was the brother of our Lord. The Holy Spirit would not have put that appellation in there unless it was important that there was a James that was not just, he could have said James, one of the twelve. He could have said James, the son of Elpheus. He could have said James the less. He didn't say any of that. He introduces a new description. James, the brother of our Lord. And he's an apostle. So with that, let's look at some verses. And let this comfort you. And let's learn our New Testament as well as we can. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We're going to run into, why was, we're going to run into some names that are repeated often, like the name of James. Why were there three James in the New Testament? It's not hard today to find a group of people that have three James, three Jims. Jim's a popular name. James is a popular name. It was popular in the New Testament because James is the Greek way of saying Jacob. And Jude, or Judas, is the Greek way of saying Judah. Joseph is the Greek way of saying Joseph. And Simon is the Greek way of saying Simeon. You know, some of those important heads of tribes of Israel. We know that Joseph himself had a father named Jacob. 
And Jacob and Judah and Joseph, Joseph and Simeon were important names in Israel's history. And so parents wanting to name their sons after important figures of history repeated these names often. So whenever you see a list of names, you'll see a number of James, Joseph, Simon, and so forth. We've got several of each of those in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 46. Matthew 12:46. While he yet talked to the people, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. And we know the rest of this. He was told that his mother and his brethren were out there and he said, who are my mother? Who is my mother and who are my brethren? Whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same as my brother and sister and mother, Amen. according to the 50th verse. Right. We use a text like this to show the Roman Catholics that the mother of Jesus held no particular place in the kingdom of heaven, but she was in fact no more important to him than anyone who heard his word and believed on him. Amen. But here we have the words mother and brethren. Now if these were cousins, what were they doing with his mother? These are mothers and brothers. And it uses the word brethren, and we stick with that word, and we trust that word. Because there isn't any necessity in the Bible to make it other than that. Right. Now the Catholics will come along and say for the second time, the word brethren here in verse 46 is cousins. Because Mary was a perpetual virgin. Now let me show you how she wasn't. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, which is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ, and which we will have different terminology used to describe His brethren. Psalm 69. And love this verse. Every word of God is pure, and if we'll learn every word, we have a sure foundation for our faith. And we can overthrow the imaginations and the hallucinations of Rome. Psalm 69. Verse 8. I am become a stranger unto my brethren. Same word used as in Matthew 12, 46. And an alien unto my mother's children. Those are brothers. If your mother has children, think about it. Those are brothers. Right. You say, well, they might only be half-brothers. Well, any brother that Jesus had was going to be a half-brother. Right. Why? <laughs> Different father. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. You know from verse 9, which is quoted in John chapter 2, that this passage does apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's referring to his brethren, and he defines what the word means, my mother's children. Mary had a son named James, the Lord's brother. Sure enough, the Bible tells us that if we'll read far enough. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. If the Holy Spirit wants us to know about the important figure in Jerusalem being the Lord's brother, we want to know that. Before we enter into this epistle, and we want to understand why God chose James to write these scattered Jews, and the more we learn about James, we know that it was the perfect choice of all the men available 
to write this particular epistle. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 55. These are what his own countrymen said about him. This is what his own people said about him in Matthew 13, 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. Jesus' own family was offended in, in him, and, his, and his, his city was offended in him in the early days. Because they knew his father, his supposed father Joseph, they knew his mother, they knew his brothers, they knew his sisters, they knew his brothers and sisters were ordinary men and women. Whence hath this man these things? Where did he get this power to perform miracles, since we know his brothers and sisters? But notice here, there are four brothers of the Lord Jesus listed, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. When put in that order, without other information, we understand that to be in their age order. Without any other information, that's how we understand it. James is obviously the oldest of his siblings. Jesus would have been the oldest son of Mary, then James, then Joseph, then Simon, and then Judas. Jesus indeed does have other children from Mary that were his brethren, and they were brethren in the true sense of the word. There's no necessity for us to modify that expression, the brother of our Lord, in Galatians 1.19. Therefore, we choose to rest with it. Whenever we find these brethren mentioned in the Gospels, they're with Mary. Let me show you a couple of examples. John chapter 2. John chapter 2. The fact that they're with Mary shows that they have a relationship to her that would be consistent with being truly her sons and his literal brothers. John chapter 2 and verse 12. This is immediately after his first miracle. John 2.12, after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. Notice the different classes that were given. There are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are his brothers, and there, are his, there is his mother. You can imagine, I hope that growing up in the household of Jesus of Nazareth, Mary knew a few things about her son. She would have most likely shared those things with his brethren and her other children. He would have been an exceptional child. That does not mean that they would have loved him. Joseph was an exceptional child, and his brothers hated him out of envy. And we will find that these brothers did not believe on Jesus Christ through his earthly ministry. But here we see the brethren being with the Lord Jesus and with Mary. Let's turn to John chapter 7 since we're close by and see that these brothers did not believe on Him yet. I'm going to start at verse 1. John chapter 7 and verse 1. Was there ever a time in your life when you didn't believe? Is God able to change an unbeliever into a believer? Is He able to change the thief on the cross from a railing and cursing thief to one begging for mercy? Is He able to take brothers that envied and, and did not believe on their brother Jesus of Nazareth into believers, you were going to see it. 
Luke, John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Notice that fifth verse. For neither did his brethren believe in him. But verse 10 tells us when his brethren went up to the feast, then Jesus went up to the feast secretly behind them. Tells us in John chapter 7. But now let's come over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Where have we gone so far? We have seen that Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, said that there was an apostle named James that was the Lord's brother. When we back up, we find that the Lord did indeed have brethren that were associated with Mary. They were sons of Mary, and the oldest one was indeed named James. And so just putting those verses together and having no other acts to grind or doctrine to defend, we trust the words of God that there was a literal brother. The Bible knows the word cousin. Ever ever read it in your Bible? The Bible knows the word cousin. The Bible knows the word uncles and aunts and so forth. Acts chapter 1. We are now 40 days plus 3 after the crucifixion. Three days and three nights in the ground. 40 days proving himself alive by many infallible proofs. And we come to the upper room. Acts chapter 1. In verse 13 there is a list of the 11 apostles. And here's what we have in verse 14. These all continued, Acts 1.14, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. There are his brethren separated from the twelve apostles and they are in the upper room because they are now believers. They're in that upper room with Mary the mother of Jesus, and the other women, because they have become believers. Praise the Lord as we see a change. We're not told when the change took place. We're going to get a hint at it in just a moment. But a change took place so that these brothers are in the upper room with the apostles in prayer, continuing with one accord in prayer and supplication. These brothers are no longer mocking their brother, nor telling him what he ought to do. They are in prayer after his ascension into heaven. Come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and let's see this class of men separated and distinguished from the apostles one more time. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The apostle Paul here is defending himself as an apostle. You can see it in the first verse. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Don't I have some liberties and some privileges by being an apostle of Jesus Christ? And he is defending himself. One of his defenses is, don't I have the right to have a wife? And here's how he reasons in verse 5. Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas? Now notice what what Paul does. Paul is reasoning... There are three categories of important men in the New Testament church. Do I not and Barnabas as apostles have the same rights that they do to have wives? 
the apostles have wives, the brethren of our Lord have wives, and Cephas, which is Peter, has a wife. We know about that one because Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law or that, that wife's mother in one of his miracles. Here is another distinction. Apostles, brethren of Jesus, and notice Paul is appealing to them as an example of righteousness. They are holding a position in the church that would add weight to his argument. If they were of no consequence, if they were unbelievers, Paul wouldn't have appealed to them at all. But he appeals to them. They're married, and you accept their wives, and you know their important role in the church. I and Barnabas have as much right to have a wife as they do, as much as Peter does, as much as the other apostles have. So we have 1 Corinthians 9.5 still with this category of men called the brethren of the Lord Jesus, the brothers of our Lord, and we know that one of them is named James. And we also know the names of the others as well. Now, when did this conversion take place? We are not told. Except we have this little hint. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've just got this little hint. For 40 days, the Lord Jesus Christ showed Himself alive by many infallible proofs. We don't read about where those brethren were at the cross, do we? Mary was there, but they weren't with her there. We, we next find them in Acts chapter 1. After Jesus ascended to heaven, they were in the upper room in prayer with one accord with the apostles and the women that followed Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is listing the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ to several parties after his resurrection. He says in verse 5, that he was seen of Cephas. Peter, the one who had denied him, had a personal appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ to him. Then of the twelve, I love the way the Bible uses words. It expects you to think. Were there twelve that he appeared to? Judas had already hung himself. But what were, what were the apostles always referred to as? The twelve. What are the tribes of Israel always referred to as? Twelve. How many were there? Fourteen. Fourteen. You say, prove that. God pulled out Levi and added two more in, the sons of Joseph. You add up all those names and you've got fourteen. But we call them the twelve tribes of Israel because it's understood everything that involves the tribes of Israel. And here it is. We're going through who Jesus appeared to. Verse 5, he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Seen of James, then of all the apostles. Without any other description about which James. Is this James the brother of John? James the son of Zebedee, James the son of Elpheus, James the less, without any other description, in this book, and in the New Testament, we would understand this James to be the leader of the church at Jerusalem, because he's the one that's referred to in every other place. A senior pastor of the church at Jerusalem, by his influence that we're about to look at. So without any other further description, we would assume this to be the James that Paul refers to in other places, like Galatians 1, as being the Lord's brother. We're told nothing more but that Jesus had a private appearing to James. 
given that there are three, without any other description, we assume that it's the James that is referred to and known so well throughout the rest of the New Testament. And whether it is that event right there that converted him when he saw his brother resurrected from the dead and showing himself alive or not, we don't know. But we know that we have this by the Holy Spirit, that there was a private appearing of Jesus to James. Come over to Acts chapter 12 and let's see the importance of this author of our epistle. Acts chapter 12. You know where we're all, where we're starting from? Galatians 1.19. Galatians 1.19. The important James in the church at Jerusalem was the Lord's brother. Because Galatians 1.19 told us that. And so whenever we find a James holding an important office in Jerusalem, we understand it to be James the Lord's brother because of Galatians 1.19. Acts chapter 12, James the son of Zebedee, James the brother of John, has his head cut off by Herod. That's in verse 2 of this chapter. Acts 12.2, Then Herod went and took Peter, put him in prison, but the Lord delivered him out of prison. But when he got out of prison, we hear what he said when he went to the house of Mary, where the prayer was being made for him. Verse 17, But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Very early, we are shown that there is a James in a position of importance in the church at Jerusalem. Because Peter says, I'm, I'm, I'm free. The Lord's delivered me this night. Now go report this to James and to the rest of the brethren, which would have included other apostles and other elders of the church at Jerusalem. But he mentions James in particular. And we understand this James to be the Lord's brother by the role that Paul gives him in Galatians chapter 1. We come over to Acts 15. Acts chapter 15. All the apostles and elders have come together to settle the issue of What are the Gentiles responsible for from the law of Moses? How much of the Old Testament do we require of Gentile converts? It tells us in verse 6, The apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up. And then when Peter was done, the multitude in verse 12 gave silence to Barnabas and Paul. But when they had held their peace, when these men had explained what they had done and what the Lord had done through them with the Gentiles, James begins speaking in verse 13. He gives his sentence in verse 19. And it is that he, he gives the sentence. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he lays out the four things that they are going to require of Gentile converts. And the whole assembly agrees to James' sentence as being by the inspiration of God. They write it down and they send it to the churches of the Gentiles. James gives the sentence. James has a very important role here in the church at Jerusalem from Acts 15. We come over to Galatians chapter 1, where we've already been, and we find that when Paul went to the church at Jerusalem, he mentions James, the Lord's brother in particular, as an apostle that he visited that first time. And as we studied through the book of Galatians some time ago, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 2 that 14 years later, He went up to Jerusalem again, and he took Barnabas with him, and Titus as well. And this time on his trip to Jerusalem, we find James again in a position of importance. And it's in verse 9, where Paul wrote and said, 
and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars. Here the Apostle Paul is explaining my second trip to Jerusalem, 14 years after my first trip, there were three men that were pillars, and he puts them in this order. James, Cephas, and John. James, Peter, and John. He puts James first, likely holding the most important role in the church at Jerusalem, as we have seen by other indications of the use of his name in the book of Acts and the book of Galatians. Let's go back to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. This is Paul's final trip to Jerusalem. He's going to be captured here by the Jews. The Romans will deliver him. The Romans will transport him to Caesarea. He will eventually, after a few years, end up in Rome at the expense of the Roman government. Acts chapter 21, verse 17, And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. The reason we have the word us, the plural pronoun, is because Luke is writing about Paul and himself. Verse 18, And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. Here is a leader of the church at Jerusalem. He's mentioned again by name, singled out and separated from the other leaders of that very large and influential church, and it's James. And we know which James it is. It's James, the Lord's brother. The brethren, the children of the mother of Jesus, the children of Mary, by comparing Scripture with Scripture and having no other doctrine to defend. And Paul goes on to to describe, Luke goes on to describe what Paul told these Jews and elders that were gathered together. But then we come down how they glorified the Lord with what he had accomplished with Paul. And then they asked that Paul would take a a vow upon himself to show to the Jews of Jerusalem that he hadn't altogether thrown out the law of Moses, but that he could still participate in a vow. And so he had a vow, and this description is given here in this place. But notice again, James is singled out as an important figure in the church at Jerusalem. Notice it is, it is under his direction right here in Acts 21 that Paul takes on a Jewish vow. Back in Acts 15, it was under his direction that certain things be observed by the Gentiles to keep the Jews happy for a few years. Those things quickly fell away. We can even read about them falling away in the New Testament because the Apostle Paul dealt with meat offered to idols as a matter of liberty with the Corinthians and with the Romans later. But for the time being, in order to avoid offending the conscience of Jews, James gave his sentence. And so, we see a very close tie between him and the church at Jerusalem and Jewish opinion. He obviously was very influential amongst the Jews. And we come back to our little epistle of James. When it starts out with James to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, we have an important figure in that church at Jerusalem who weighed in on councils about how much of the law of Moses should be required of the Gentiles, who told even the Apostle Paul, we want you to take a vow upon yourself in the temple to show that you are not altogether opposed to the law of Moses. And so there's a little history about a man named James, whom Paul says was the Lord's brother, whom the Gospel writers said were part of the brethren of Jesus, whom David in prophecy said was the son of Jesus' mother, and who had an influential role in the church. 
And he had a ministry to the circumcision, as Paul tells us in Galatians 2.9, while Paul's ministry was to the uncircumcision to us. Let's look at that first verse of our epistle, James. We want to understand this man and how the Lord raised him up, converted him out of his own family, put him in an important position in the church at Jerusalem. And how he would even be appealed to by Paul when writing other churches that my brother, the brothers of our Lord have wives. Why can't I and Barnabas have one? We're, aren't we as apostles as much as they are? Don't we have as much authority and liberty as they do? The second question you want to ask whenever you're writing, reading any writing, whether it's in the Bible or elsewhere, but especially in the Bible, to whom is it addressed? And we're thankful for this epistle. It is so plain. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. He tells us the audience exactly. The twelve tribes of Israel scattered abroad. He was not writing to the Jews in Jerusalem or the Jews in Judea. They would have already known his position on these things because that's where we always find him. James is always found in Jerusalem. Whether it's Paul's first trip, second trip, or last trip, James is in Jerusalem. So those people would have known, those Jews would have known, but he tells us he is writing to the Jews everywhere that are scattered abroad without taking the time to go back and review our Old Testament history. In 635 B.C., the Assyrians took ten tribes of Israel captive and scattered them throughout the world. Ten tribes were dispersed by the Assyrian army. In 522 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came and took the two tribes that were remaining, Judah and Benjamin, and took them captive into Babylon, and they were scattered abroad. Seventy years later, Cyrus says, The Lord God of heaven has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Those of you of his people that want to go do that, rise up and return to your homeland and build the city of Jerusalem and build the house of your God. Only 45,000 got up and went home. The rest stayed right where they were. So many stayed right where they were that we will read about Peter later in life, closing out 1 Peter chapter 5, saying that he was in what city? Babylon. Babylon. He's in Babylon because there was still a great, a large Jewish stronghold there. After 70 years, many of them lost their conviction. They built houses. They planted vineyards and fields and they stayed. And we find Peter there on the day of Pentecost. And let's go to Acts chapter 2 because it's, it's valuable to see exactly who was in Jerusalem, what nationality, race, or religion they were, and where they were from to hear the speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 2. To the twelve tribes scattered abroad. There were Jews in every place. And, And James is writing a general epistle to be read by all of them, lest any of them overreact in hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so lay down all lawful living and assume that once we believed in Jesus Christ and Paul's been preaching that the law isn't important, we're not bound by any law. And so the whole book of James is very much addressed to a generation like ours of easy believism where all you've got to do is believe on Jesus and you're saved. But James is going to write from beginning to end, this is what you need to be doing. This is what you need to be doing. But let's first of all address to whom is he writing. Look in Acts chapter 2. 
It says in verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. Acts 2.5 And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. They would have been there for Passover and this Pentecost that came 50 days later. That's what Pentecost means. 50 days later. So these are Jews. Now they come together and look at what it says, what these men say about themselves. Verse 8. How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians. So there's Jews from Parthia. And Medes. There's Jews from Media. And Elamites. There's Jews from Elam. These are provinces of the Babylonian Empire. And the dwellers in Mesopotamia. That's where Babylon was located. These are Jews from these places had come to Jerusalem to worship. And in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Back to James. So when it says the twelve tribes scattered abroad in our history book called the New Testament, we are shown, in a history book called the Old Testament, the Assyrians scattered ten tribes. Nebuchadnezzar scattered two tribes. Acts chapter 2 shows us Jews throughout the world. When the Apostle Paul would travel into the cities of the Roman Empire, it tells us what his method was of preaching and evangelism. When he went into a city, what would he look for? A synagogue. There's only one kind of people that worship in a synagogue. Who are they? Jews. The twelve tribes scattered abroad who were trying to hold on to Old Testament worship the best they could at a distance from Jerusalem. And that's where Paul would go. So there's further evidence in the history book of the New Testament, the book of Acts. The history book of the book of Acts, that there were synagogues in most of those cities that Paul visited where he could go find Jews reading the scriptures of the Old Testament. He could preach Jesus to them. Thankfully, we're told that James was writing to converts. First of all, he calls them brethren in the second verse. But in the first verse of the second chapter, he says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respective persons. These were believers in the gospel and doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's writing to believers, though his, his salutation is very brief. He's writing to believers, believing Jews, the scattered tribes of Israel, throughout the Roman Empire. You know, and at the end of the book, he's going to tell them to, to convert one another back into the way of truth if any of them were to get out of the way of truth. So they're in the way of truth, and he's exhorting them to stay in it and what kind of living that it involves. These Jewish believers could easily have overreacted at hearing the Old Testament has been put away. Jesus Christ is our complete fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament, the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lambs. He is the fulfillment of it all. He is a high priest forever. There would have been an easy overreaction to think that the law had gone out the back door. And so James writes an epistle just laying duty upon duty back on them, lest they think that by faith they were justified alone and there was no need for good works. That's why I started out earlier today with Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. This is a faithful saying. 
that those which had believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. This is good and acceptable unto men. And so as we look into this epistle of James and we wonder, why isn't there any mention of salvation in it? It's a strange epistle. It's not like Romans or Galatians. We think about what were those, what would those Jews have been like that would have heard the gospel? It would have been very easy for some of them. Now some of them were Jewish legalists. Paul addressed them. Paul addressed Jewish legalists in Romans chapter 3 and 4 and Galatians chapters 3 and 4. But here James is dealing with Jews that were antinomians. I don't like using that word, but I'll, it's used in church history, so I'll just tell you what it means. It means without law. It means that they had believed on Jesus Christ and thought that that was all there was to being a Christian. And James is going to bring back onto them the burden of how they ought to be living with good works. The very practical nature of the book indicates their practical weakness. Or at least that's what James was addressing rather than any doctrinal error. Because he hardly brings up a single doctrine, it's all practical obedience and godliness. Consider how that this epistle, in the way that it's worded, sounds like it was written to a generation like ours. Look at, look at verses 26 and 27 of the first chapter. If any man among you seem to be religious, remember, Paul warned against the generation who would have a form of godliness, but would deny the power thereof. This is seeming to be religious. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Notice what he's going after. It doesn't matter how well you go to church, how often you go to church, or how much you put in the offering plate, if you cannot bridle your tongue. Because part of New Testament religion, James is going to teach in chapter 3, is bridling that member that is in our mouths. He says in verse 27, pure religion. And undefiled before God and the Father is this. And notice it's not doctrine, it's practice. It's godliness that James is going to emphasize. And he does it in every chapter through this book. This is the book that says if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. This is a book that attacks worldly Christianity from beginning to end. It is a powerful exhortation and a practical warning to holiness from the very beginning to the very end. Notice that there is only one verse of salutation and greeting. One, one. Just one verse. There's no verses at the end saying, greet so-and-so for me. Or, Tertius has written this epistle. Or, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It is just hard-hitting, practical exhortations and warnings from the second verse of the first chapter to the last word of the fifth chapter. I mean, he closes out by saying, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, and the epistle's over. It's a hard-hitting, practical exhortation to godliness throughout. This epistle continues unabated in its style and intensity to the very last words. This man brought his full weight to bear by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to exhort these scattered Jews to godly living out there among the Gentiles. When you read this epistle, and I hope you'll read it many times over the next few weeks, that there isn't any mention of blood. These are words that aren't, don't even occur in this epistle. Blood, gospel, eternal life, the Holy Spirit, redemption, forgiveness, cross, sacrifice, atonement, reconciliation, peace with God, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, 
None of those things are mentioned here. It is understood that he's writing to believers who are in the faith, but they are not living practical lives of godliness and holiness. And so his epistle is committed to one task, to get them to be bringing forth good works in their lives, just like Paul told Titus, those that have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. There's only two indirect references to Jesus Christ. But 13 to God as he writes these scattered Jews. There's only one reference to grace, and it's practical grace for living in the fourth chapter. But there's seven references to the law. James uses the word law seven times to let these scattered Israelites know that there is still a law binding them, and he calls it the perfect law of liberty. He knows there's still a law that's binding them. He calls it, in chapter 2, the royal law. And so he's reminding them that they are not antinomians. And I want to tell you something. In church history of the last 2,000 years, for a church that believes in election and predestination and the, and the great God's grace and immediate regeneration by the Holy Spirit like we do, we are immediately accused of being antinomians. That that means you can go ahead and live any way you want to because if you're elect, you're going to heaven. And if you're not elect, you're going to hell. And there's not anything you can do about it. We've always been accused of that, our fathers in the faith. And we have epistles like this to defend us because the Bible is balanced and the Bible does have a phase in which we are responsible for bringing forth good works. Martin Luther didn't like this epistle. He called it an epistle of straw. He tried to take it out of his Bible. He questioned its canonicity, whether it should even be one of the 27 books of the New Testament, because in his mind, he couldn't reconcile it with the book of Romans. But it reconciles perfectly to us. Faith is an evidence of justification, and good works are an evidence of that faith that is an evidence of justification. We fit it together very well. We don't have a problem. And we're thankful for this epistle. When was it written? It was written relatively early during the time of Reformation because in chapter 5 we're going to have a reference to an apostolic healing practice of anointing with oil and praying and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now we have this in James. James, being the brother of our Lord, writing it to scattered Jews. The Lord had given signs to the Jewish church. We're told that, that the signs were given to Jews because Jews require a sign But when we read Paul's writings, when Paul gets toward the end of his ministry, does he tell Timothy to call for the elders of the church and to be anointed with oil to get rid of his stomach problems? No. He tells him to use a home remedy of drinking wine. What about Trophimus that he left sick? And that's why when we get to chapter 5, we're going to deal with that differently than some have dealt with it. This was an apostolic method of praying over someone with oil, and the prayer of faith would raise the sick. Not that it might raise the sick. This would be a sign gift in the early church, which was called miracles. Which was well below the teaching gifts of the church, but it was still a gift in the early church, among the Jews in particular. Because the Jews required a sign. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If what we understand from the rest of the New Testament is correct about the identity of this man, look what it says about him. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once a skeptic, once an unbeliever, now a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not ashamed to state it clearly here in the first verse. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, 
that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. There are seven lessons in chapter 1. Seven lessons. The first lesson is in verses 2 through 4. In in verses 2 through 4, we have a lesson of bearing up under temptations. In verses 5 through 8 is the request for wisdom and the offer of wisdom from God. Verses 9 through 11 is the vanity of riches. Verses 12 through 17 is enduring temptations to sin. Verses 18 through 20 are being born again to righteousness. Verses 21 through 25 are being doers of the word and not hearers only. And the last two verses of the chapter have the seventh lesson about vain religion versus pure religion and religion in sincerity. The first lesson is right here in verses 2 through 4. I'll only introduce it and we will take our break. My brethren, he starts off with a tender phrase of greeting to them. Count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Brethren, at times in your life you will fall into temptations. These temptations are not seductions to sin. The temptations here are difficulties, afflictions, infirmities, fears, confusion. You're going to fall into them. But when you fall into them, count it all joy. Because God has brought you to the place where you have fallen into them for the purpose of refining, proving, testing, and trying your faith to make you better. Therefore, do not fight against it. Do not resent it, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. The, one of the greatest, most complete measures of a Christian is how well they can handle great adversity. Patience here is not waiting for something. Patience is enduring difficulties and enduring those difficulties cheerfully and without your faith being lost or overthrown. And a Christian wants to add to his faith virtue and a virtue knowledge and to knowledge patience. Because we want to learn patience. Because patience is one of the fullest measures of a Christian. Look at the Apostle Paul and what we had read to us by the men this morning. We saw David encouraging himself in 1 Samuel 30. Then we saw Paul describing The fact that though he was often perplexed, he wasn't in despair or distress. And though he was cast down, he wasn't destroyed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians 12, he had reached a place in his life where he could say, Most gladly, therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities, because when I am weak, the power of Christ rests upon me and shows His work in my life. You can show the greatest work of God in your life by enduring temptations, difficulties, and afflictions as the Lord brings them your way. And He will bring them your way. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. And when He brings them, count it all joy because the Lord is perfecting your faith and showing Jesus Christ more perfectly in you and conforming you more perfectly to His image. So when you are dealing with troubles in your life financially, physically, maritally, with your children, 
with your job, with your mind, with your emotions, when you have troubles, count it all joy, because the Lord is trying you. But I can tell you, put into practice Psalm 61 and run to the rock that is higher than you. Because it is by running to that rock that we exercise our faith in a way that meets with God's approval and He will lift that trial and those temptations. May the Lord bless our opening to the epistle of James. May we come back in a little while and consider a few more verses and then come to the Lord's table where we remember His death until He comes.